Sally Ride was the first American woman in space. A scientist, an astronaut, and also an educator, she was a brilliant and defiant polymath who forged her path and inspired millions. Just as comfortable in a NASA space shuttle as in the classroom, she was an extraordinary pioneer and was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Welcome to this episode of Stanford and the 20th Century, the series that looks at history through the life and work of major global figures with a connection to the university. I'm Daniel Ray, and in this episode, we'll be exploring the life of Sally Ride. Ride was born in Encino, California in 1951 and earned four Stanford degrees, from a Bachelor of Arts in English to a PhD in astrophysics. It's a great privilege to be joined down the line by award-winning broadcaster, best-selling author, and friend of Sally Ride, Lynn Scher. In 2014, Lynn published the authoritative biography of Ride, Sally Ride, America's First Woman in Space. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me on the program. Happy to be with you, Daniel. Lynn, Sally Ride had an extraordinary adult life, but what was she like when she was growing up? Sally was playful, funny, smart, and uh, actually sort of an iconoclast from the time she was born. This is a kid who very much went on her own path, who very much listened to her own her own gods, her own music, her own drumbeat, and pretty much did what she wanted to do. But But she did that because she had parents who were probably the perfect kind of parents, certainly, for somebody like Sally. Her father was in education. Her mother did a variety of things. They were loving and they were intellectual and they believed that their two daughters, Sally had a younger sister, um, they believed that their children should be allowed to grow and do what they wanted to do, which was really pretty amazing for the 1950s and, and that period. And how did they encourage her? By letting her do what she wanted to do and going along with her way of doing things, uh, Sally had a fabulous talent as an athlete, and she was encouraged to play tennis, and she wound up on the junior tennis circuit. She was ranked nationally. Her father went with her, took her, drove her to all the games. Her parents were totally into this, and they thought she was good enough that she might at some point uh, go professional, and this was a wonderful career that they saw. Later, she'd meet the great Billie Jean King, another pioneer for women. but Well, I, the- I, I, I should also add that Sally made a decision after she had met Billie Jean King, uh, who was then Billie Jean Moffat, um, at a tournament. And Billie Jean encouraged her. She did all young young players to, you know, peek after their goal. And Sally realized that she was never going to be the, at the top of the top. And for Sally, anything less than number one and winning Grand Slams was never going to satisfy. So... Um, she determined not to be a tennis player after giving it a shot and then, and then turned to physics. I know I'm getting a little ahead of the story yeah. here, but in later life, if you said to Sally, as I often did, well, why did you give up that tennis career? She would often answer my forehand. <laughs> that's the, so she had a good, she had a good answer for it. Yeah. That's the dry Sally, Sally ride wit that uh, we see time and again. Exactly. And she seems precocious, too. Um, In the book, you have a section where you mention a letter that she tells her chemistry teacher to keep, where she says, it may become a collector's item 
worth millions of dollars when I become famous. <laughs> she, she didn't have too many doubts <laughs> about her own ability to succeed. Having said that, let's call it a healthy ego. Mm-hmm. Um, what Sally was all of her life, and, and I know we'll talk more about this later, but she really was an introvert in terms of how she came on to the world. Her mother, who was a, had studied psychology, um, always said that on the Briggs-Meyer, the Meyer-Briggs scale, whichever one it is, Sally was definitely the I, uh, the I for introvert as opposed to the E for extrovert. Mm. This was worked into her DNA. And for her to say something like that to her teacher, that's part of her dry wit. It is part of her complete self-confidence in herself. But it's actually, it was very unusual for this young woman, this girl, young woman, who would not often toot her own horn. She just did stuff and let other people do the rest of it. Hmm. And did she have an early interest in science or space? Always was interested in science, watched the early space shots, like so many of us, when the black and white television was wheeled into the classroom. (laughs) And never, of course, never thought this was something she could do because there were no women doing it at that time. The space program was 100% male from the astronauts uh, to the flight managers. We know now, of course, there were many women behind the scenes that NASA never gave credit to at the time. But in terms of the out front people, those were men. And that was a decision made by a government desperate not to let the, the old Soviet Union beat us in the race to space and the race to the moon. Uh, and it was under President Eisenhower that the rules for choosing the early astronauts were first made. And the decision was made to choose individuals, I'm phrasing this carefully now, <laughs> individuals with a military background because they wanted people who knew how to fly planes and understood about uh, risk. And they wanted individuals who had flown jet planes. And since both of those things were totally off limits for women, they guaranteed that they would only have men applying. And by the way, white men at the time. Mm. So NASA was totally stuck in the ethos of our social culture in those days. It took 25 years, but we finally got the women in. Yeah, that's a great portrait of Sally's early life and her times. Thank you, Lynn. Jumping a little bit ahead to her time at college after spending three semesters on the East Coast at Swarthmore in Pennsylvania. She returned to California, transferring to Stanford, where she was also the tennis team's number one. Although we now see her firmly as a scientist, the other side of her double major was English. Can you explain that, Lynn? You know, I would go and and visit her and spend time with her when she was an adult, when she was at NASA. And Sally could do crossword puzzles better than anyone else I knew. She had an incredible functioning brain that could put words together in a way that um, no offense scientists out there, but in a way that many scientists cannot. Uh, And she also loved and appreciated literature. So the idea that she could be a major in astrophysics and also be doing a paper on Shakespeare is probably amazing to a lot of people. It wasn't the least bit amazing to Sally. Mm -hmm. She could, she was a polymath. She was not self-taught. She read a lot, but she she gobbled up everything. And these were things that appealed to her and that she excelled in as well. 
nonetheless, she prioritised science, excelling in the lab, and earned her PhD from Stanford in 1978. That year, she applied to NASA. How did that come about? You know, it's a story that sounds as if it's made up, <laughs> and it isn't. It, it, what I love about Sally's story, every single bit of it, is that none of it is made up. It all really happened. Not, by the way, that you would have learned most of it from her. Most of what I've learned about Sally and therefore what I put in the book is stuff that I had to dig up afterwards because she never talked about these things. However, we do know a lot of things. And what we know is that one day, well, let me, let me back up. So I mentioned that NASA was an all boys club, an all white boys club for a quarter of a century. And NASA finally figured out it was time to change. They, they were a little slow in this. Uh, major universities had already started admitting uh, women to what were then previously all men's schools. The military had started admitting women. Certainly corporate America was aware of it. Certainly from my position, broadcast America was aware of it. But NASA finally got the message. Uh, in the mid-70s, and they, they, in 1976, with the advent, the upcoming advent of the new space shuttle program, which was a larger spacecraft with room for more people, so no more of these one, two, and three people flight crammed into a little capsule, they also realized not only did they have more room, but that they would be doing things on the space flights that no longer required just, just, a pilot's acumen, or just the ability to fly and land a plane. What they needed were scientists. And lo and behold, NASA figured out, oh, gosh, I guess women and people of color can be scientists also. So NASA very wisely came around and said, we are going to start recruiting and looking for a new class of astronauts, and we need them to be from every walk of society. They need to be we're not putting out any gender rules. We're not putting out any color rules. And the only rule they did have was science. You needed to have a science degree because they believe, even though Sally had a wonderful Shakespeare degree, that would not have been enough. You needed to know enough science to be able to do all sorts of things in space uh, in case you were needed to do that. So NASA now starts looking for people of color, for women, and they put out a flyer. And one day, somebody at NASA is interviewed by somebody at Stanford, and there's an article in the Stanford Daily. Mm. Sally won winter day. Um, of course, winters in Palo Alto are not anything like winters in the east, but nonetheless, it was a, I guess it might, might have been a gloomyish day. Sally goes for her bagel or her donut or whatever and her coffee, picks up the Stanford Daily, and she reads this article. And her eyes absolutely widened. The idea that NASA was looking for women, was looking for women with a science degree to do something with adventure, totally punched all the buttons that she cared about. And she looked at it, said to herself, I can do that, puts the Stanford Daily down, takes her coffee with her, goes, gets a pencil, gets a piece of paper, gets an envelope and gets a stamp was a long time ago, and writes a letter to NASA asking for an application. Almost by return mail, she gets the application, she fills it out, and then she sits and waits. And she waits like everybody else. And lucky for her, she gets the call some months later saying, um, want to come for an interview? So off she goes for an interview. 
And just to shorthand the story very quickly, yes, she gets accepted. And suddenly, when she graduates with her PhD in astrophysics, Sally Ride is headed to Houston to become an astronaut. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. And NASA required extensive training from its recruits. And Sally had just done many, many years of studies herself. What was she like during training? Very, very obedient to NASA's rules. Very committed. uh, Worked her tail off. And she was really good at it. This same young woman who would break many rules if she felt they didn't need to be there was a good little a good little team player who all she wanted to do was learn, show how good she was, and get herself on a space flight. She loved every single part of it. She did the water the water training, which was a water escape training. She she jumped in a parachute. She just did everything you had to do. And she learned all the uh, all the physics stuff, all the space physics stuff, all the orbital physics. Uh, she did her job and she got it done. Yeah. What was her class like? Sally was one of 35 new astronauts. And every astronaut class gives itself a name. And they call themselves 35 New Guys, which turned into TFNG, <laughs> uh, which is a little... Set of a little acronym, not uh, unpronounceable acronym that was that was on their t-shirts and the whole thing. But this astrophysicist, this tennis player, the Shakespeare person from Southern California, went to college in Northern California, finds herself in a class with military uh, jet pilots, guys who had flown during Vietnam, with other scientists, with a bunch of women, uh, with a few people of color, with mostly white men. Uh, it was a a total different environment from what she had been used to. And the idea that there was leftover testosterone among the older NASA people, but a lot of that got ironed out pretty quickly. So all this was a, a wonderful combination of things that she was now part of, and she loved every second of being a part of it. Well, of the six female trainees admitted in 1978, Sally was chosen to be the first NASA woman in space. What made her stand out even in this elite group? You know, what every astronaut candidate or accomplished astronaut wants to do is fly in space. That is the reason that they're there. And in order to do that, they do anything possible to shine, to show how good they are, all the extra jobs. Nobody complained about overtime. Nobody complained about working too hard. Sally just worked her tail off. In the research that I did, what I learned is that she was chosen for a variety of reasons. Any one of the six women would have been a terrific first woman, any single one of them. Sally, I believe, was chosen largely for what she had accomplished, largely, I know, because she had worked on the development of the uh, robot arm, the Canada arm, which was this giant crane kind of thing that was used to help launch and retrieve satellites. And she was going to be the one to work it on orbit. So that was a big piece of it. I will also tell you that I firmly believe, and I have good evidence on this, that one of the reasons she was chosen is because of her tennis background. Number one, it was the hand-eye coordination, which enabled her to work the robot arm quite flawlessly. And the other was the fact that she knew how to be a team player. Mm. She understood what it meant to be part of a crew. 
She understood how to win and she understood how to lose. And I think all those things went together because they saw someone who could be part of the crew. And I don't think anybody realized what a big deal First American Woman in Space was going to be, but they knew there was something to it. And they also picked someone who was not going to lord it over anybody, who was not going to take advantage of the situation. And boy, did they pick the right person. And what was the purpose of this first mission? They were launching a couple of uh, commercial satellites and trying out the equipment still. Uh, Don't forget it was called STS-7, the seventh shuttle mission. And even though it was declared operational, they were still in these sort of experimental phase and trying to see what worked and what didn't work. Lynn, when did you first meet Sally and how did she come across to you? So I go down to Houston in January of 1981 and um, our team and I are, are being allowed to interview John Young and Bob Crippen, who were going to fly the first space shuttle. And we prepared a bunch of stories about this new space vehicle that was this thing that would be going into space that that the American public knew almost nothing about. And it was our job to make it understandable. So one of my first assignments was to do a piece on the so-called new breed of astronauts. That is not only the the new class in the TFNG crowd, the 35 new guys. (laughs) uh, So a couple of fighter pilots. And we asked NASA to give us you know, give me four or five people, let me have at least one woman, at least somebody of color and someone who's not a fighter pilot, that kind of thing. Well, they gave me an assortment of people, wonderful all, among whom was Sally. Sally and I sat down for our interview. And there's, it's now the first outside interview she's done. And it's my first interview at NASA. And the two of us just immediately hit it off. Not only was she peppy and smart and snappy, but I said to her at one point, so why do you want to go into space? And she looked at me very calmly and quietly. And she said, well, you know, I'm not sure I can explain it. <laughs> if you understand it, you get it. And if not, I can't explain it to you. And I thought that was just wonderful. And so we bonded over that. And also the fact that she very proudly called herself a feminist and was very proud to be part of the first class of women and and believed deeply uh, in equal rights for women. And Again, this is 1981. It should have been a no-brainer, but trust me, there were women who didn't believe in that. So Sally and I responded, and for the next couple of years, all when I would go down there to cover other space flights, she and I would go out for beer and pizza and and shrimp at some local dive and just have a wonderful time. So we just became very close friends. Mm. Well, about a month before the launch of the Challenger shuttle in 1983. Sally received significant media attention for being a female astronaut, and not all of it was good press coverage. During one conference, she was asked, Will your flight affect your reproductive organs? Do you weep when things go wrong on the job? How well, that was the one. Yeah. That was the one. That was the one. The, the do you weep. That's the one that just set my teeth on edge and Sally's teeth on edge and and should have set everybody's teeth on edge. I mean, here's a woman who has now, who's got a, a PhD in astrophysics. Here's a woman who um, has gone through four years of astronaut training. Here's a woman who is completely qualified to do the job. And some jerk, a reporter, uh, a guy from Time magazine said, he wondered what happened during training when something went wrong. And he said, I mean, when there's a glitch or a funny, 
or something like that. He said, how do you take it? Do you weep? Well, many of us in the in the press corps just rolled our eyes. She took it all in stride. She smiled. She turned to one side and looked at the shuttle pilot that she was flying with, Rick Halk, and she said, why doesn't anyone ever ask Rick these questions? <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. She diffused the question. I would have probably clawed his eyes out, but she actually pulled it off. Uh, another male reporter at the same press conference actually said, did you ever wish you were a boy? Sally gritted her teeth and said, no, I never thought about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, really, seriously? So so that, those are the moments when you knew that NASA had really picked the right person because she just took it all in stride yeah. and just just did her thing. Yes, it's that ability to remain calm, I suppose, that, that really attracted NASA to Sally. Yes. And it sounds like people were not expecting her to succeed at all, despite the fact that she was helping to de- design the robotics, as you mentioned earlier. Television host Johnny Carson even joked that the launch of the shuttle was being postponed until Sally could find the right purse to match her shoes. The best thing about that line, which is, of course, as dumb a thing as a person could say, is that when I went back and I looked at all the old footage of all the dumb jokes that Johnny Carson made at Sally's expense, and by the way, that was only one of them. Uh, He had other jokes that were just kind of frat house gags. They met mostly with boos or embarrassed silence from the studio audiences. Mm. And he did it for the whole year since she, she was announced and it took about a, about a year of training. And he kept throwing these jokes out. And towards the end of when he was making these jokes, the audience actually started booing him, hmm. which I found quite extraordinary. And what it meant was that in just over a year, the idea that NASA had picked Sally and her own conduct had virtually transformed female astronauts from a punchline to a matter of national pride. Hmm. The nation, the world, everybody was on her side and everybody got it except for Johnny Carson, apparently. <laughs> well, carrying a Stanford banner on the 18th of June, 1983, Sally Ride became the first American woman in space when she flew aboard the Challenger shuttle. Lynn, you were anchoring ABC's coverage of the launch. What was that day like? Can I talk about the day before first? Yes, please do. <laughs> please do. Um, I, I did a one-on-one interview with Sally probably about a month before she flew. And I said to her, why is your flight important? And, well, she had said, my flight's important because it's something a woman hasn't done before. It's just more evidence a woman can do everything. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> I asked her if she felt under pressure. And she said, I do feel pressure, she told me, not to mess up. That's all she said. But I knew just what she meant. She meant she didn't want to mess up for her crew, for the mission, for NASA, for the U.S., for the future of space travel. But mostly, she didn't want to mess up for the future of other women traveling off the Earth. She understood that if she messed up, the world would interpret it to mean, well, no woman can possibly handle it. But she also knew that if she did well, the doors would open for other women. Mm -hmm. And all of those things were things she cared about. So she was on her best, best, best behavior. But let me point out, she was always Sally. So now she is, from the time she's announced until the time she actually flies, she had become, for her 15 minutes, the most famous person on the planet. She was on the cover of every magazine. She was interviewed all over the place. She finally put a stop to that. 
She was every little girl's role model. She was being watched by everybody. And of course, um, she was off limits the week before the launch because all astronauts go into quarantine before they fly because um, NASA doesn't want any germs from one of us to compromise their ability to fly. Okay, fine. So the night before her flight, uh, which is going to be dawn the next day, I'm sitting in the ABC workspace, which was, of course, a trailer. We worked in um, (laughs) mobile homes, which were outfitted, retrofitted as offices, sitting there working on my script for that night's evening news. And I, I hear someone answer the phone and someone says, Lynn, it's for you. I pick it up and she says, hi there, it's Sally. What are you doing 10 minutes from now? <laughs> I said, I don't know, Sally. What am I doing 10 minutes from now? And she said, go outside your trailer, turn left, walk down the road, and look ahead. So I did. I walked outside. I turned left. I walked down the road. And there about, I don't know, 50 yards in front of me was Sally standing by a convertible in cutoffs and a T-shirt, waving at me and smiling. She knew I wouldn't come closer. She knew I would not jeopardize her flight. It was her way of saying, I'm fine. I know everyone thinks I'm uptight. I'm fine. Tell the world if you want. I am just fine and looking forward to this. It was also her way of pushing the NASA envelope just enough so that she could do what she felt like doing, which is get out of where all the other astronauts were and just sort of get out the world for a minute, say hi to her friend and then go back to where she was supposed to be. So I could report on, on television that night as the only the only reporter in the world, by the way, to say, oh, yeah, I've seen Sally. I've talked to her. She's fine. <laughs> so this is my way of saying that, yes, I think she was uptight like anybody else. I think there was a lot in her mind. I think there was a lot of pressure. But she took a minute to get out of that and say, look at me. I can still be me, which I think says a lot about Sally. Mm-hmm. That's the night before. The day of. Uh, it was gorgeous. It was brilliant. Little puffs of white dotting the pure blue sky. Challenger, officially missions STS-7, thundered off the launch pad at 7.33 a.m. Eastern time with its crew of five. There were about half a million people lining the beaches and the roads, many of them singing a song that Sally truly hated, which was Ride, Sally, Ride. <laughs> um, but her little playful grin was evident the minute we saw her picture, and even before we saw her picture, as the um, shuttle lifted off and we finally got uh, communication with the astronauts back, Sally radioed back to Earth, have you ever been to Disneyland? This was definitely an (laughs) e-ticket, meaning the most adventurous ride. So she loved the ride-off, just loved it. Then we first started seeing pictures, and there was Sally with her hair all fluffing around her head in, in, in microgravity and floating around in stocking feet and adjusting immediately. She took to it like, like a fish in water and did a perfect job. Hmm. Just the third woman to ever travel in space, Sally Ride was now a household name across the United States. At one point, NASA was fielding 23 calls an hour asking for Sally Ride to appear on this television station or open such and such a facility. What was the afterglow of the mission like for Sally? You know, I know that she knew it might be tough, particularly for someone as introverted as she was by nature. I know that NASA knew it was going to be tough. Uh, They had people that were helping her to deal with the pressure of publicity, uh, to deal with the travel. I don't think anybody realized quite how much it would take out of an individual like her 
She went along with it for quite a long time, went to the White House, President Reagan, and she was, by the way, a dyed-in-the-world Democrat (laughs) who got along just fine with the president. And she did what she was supposed to do. She loved talking to kids. So if it was a kids group, that was fine. But there was a point when it got to her. And we have some evidence that she wound up seeing somebody for a little bit of help to get her head back on straight. Um, Unfortunately, don't know who it was, don't know how long it lasted. But she was troubled by all this. Her life was not about being in front of a screen, being in front of a microphone. Her life was about getting her work done. And this was very, very difficult for her for a long time. But she did it. And she did it well. And by the way, continued to do it for the rest of her life. She learned to speak in public. She would have to literally grit her teeth, clench her fists before she did it. But she did it every single time. She was a great representative. And tell me about the time she met the second woman in space, the Soviet astronaut Svetlana Sevetskaya. Here is more of wonderful, playful Rules are not made for me all the time, Sally Ride. So now we're um, in the post-flight publicity. Again, every astronaut has to do this, and they all hate it, but there she was. <laughs> and she was going to a um, an international space conference in Budapest, and uh, her husband, Steve Holy, a fellow astronaut who had yet to fly, Steve was with her, along with the pilot of her mission, Rick Houck, and his then-wife. So they're they're over there, and there had just been a terrible incident with the Soviet Union. And l- let us just say we were not on the best of terms with them. They were our enemy. And the crew had gotten very explicit instructions. When they went to the international conference in Budapest, there was to be no socializing, no socializing with the enemy. There was to be no intermingling with the Russian cosmonauts, with the Soviet cosmonauts. No getting together. They didn't want any images of the astronauts and the cosmonauts lifting their glasses together and drinking to the greatness of the unity of space. We were on not war, but Cold War footing with the Soviet Union. There had particularly been an incident with a downed plane. And these, these instructions were in no uncertain terms. So there they are. And who else is at this conference? But Svetlana Savitskaya, the second Soviet woman to go into space, uh, who had flown just before Sally, probably because the Soviet Union wanted to grab the attention from the United States about having another woman in space. In any event, someone approaches Sally and makes it clear that Svetlana's in the room. They saw each other, couldn't talk. And Svetlana wants to meet Sally. Sally wants to meet Svetlana. And Sally makes it clear that she's game to meet her secretly. Sally talks to her husband, talks to Rick, her pilot, and they both said, you do what you want. (laughs) It's up to you. We're not getting involved in this. So one night, sure enough, there's this clandestine meeting between Sally Ride, America's first woman in space, darling of America, and Svetlana Savitskaya, who had just flown for the Soviet Union. And they meet off campus, that is to say, not in the official hotel. They go to the apartment of the Hungarian cosmonaut, and they spend four or five hours in the wee hours of the morning drinking fruit juice and toasting each other. Neither one of them spoke the other language, but they communicated just fine. 
and formed essentially a lifelong bond. At about five in the morning or just pre-dawn, the next morning, Sally is being driven back to the hotel with Svetlana in the same car. And they said their goodbyes. And Sally went in the back entrance of the hotel, the official hotel, went up to her room. And nobody ever knew about it officially until I wrote my book. I found it in her records. And she didn't talk about it. It wasn't publicized. It was never found out. And Sally pulled this off and maintained a friendship with Svetlana. They exchanged, I believe, some letters. And Svetlana sent a wonderful note after Sally died. This was Sally saying, come on, world, three women have flown in space, and I'm going to meet one of them. And don't tell me that just because our countries can't get along, that she and I can't have a conversation. And they did, and good for them. Well, Sally's second mission came in 1984, also aboard the Challenger. But in 1986, disaster struck. 73 seconds into its 10th flight, the Challenger shuttle broke apart, killing all seven crew members. Sally had flown twice in that very shuttle, Lynn. How did the accident affect her? She was devastated. Um, Not only was it the obvious, which is the space agency to which she owed so much and which she believed very deeply, but she had friends on that flight, Hmm. and they all died, and they were pals. She was very close with Judy Resnick. Uh, She was very close with um, uh, Dick Scobie, the commander, and good friends with the others. And she lost a bunch of friends. And she also saw what it meant for NASA. And she saw the the loss of trust in this agency. And she also probably for a minute thought, oh, my gosh, it could have been me. Mm. Um, She was horrified. And like everybody else, she got to work. She was the only shuttle astronaut and the only woman asked to be on the commission that investigated the Challenger explosion. And she was ultimately the source of a very critical revelation that helped pinpoint the problem. She was an incredible member of that commission, and she just did an amazing job. And I I was covering it, and I finally convinced her to do an interview with me. Nobody else got an interview during the Challenger hearings. And she said something then that was front page headlines for a while after that. I said to her, would you fly again right now? And she said, no, I'm not ready to fly right now. She also had lost faith in the agency's ability to fly safely at that moment. And this was a big deal, very big deal. But she believed in it. And her contribution to the report helped fix the agency at that point. And that was really very impressive. Hmm. Well, after the report, Sally returned to Stanford to work at the Center for International Security and Arms Control. That was 1987. What did that involve? That was about trying to figure out how to keep peace in the world, and it was a perfect place for her to be. She loved that work. That's also, incidentally, where she became very close friends with Condoleezza Rice, who was then at the same commission. The two of them were both football fans, and they would watch Stanford games and every other games in Condi's apartment and remain very good friends, even though their politics were quite different for the rest of Sally's life. She liked the academic work. You know, I often thought Sally would be happiest in, you know, in a library back in the stacks looking things up. And that really appealed to her. That was that was part of what she wanted to do. So so being at Stanford for that was was very exciting for her. She quite loved it. Hmm. Well, two years after that, uh, after the 
Soviet threat had passed and world peace was looking a bit like it was on a surer footing, Sally looked for a more academic role, which, as you mentioned, I'm sure appealed to her. But she was rejected for a professorship at Stanford on account of not having published enough papers. How did she deal with that rejection, Lynn? This was, after all, her beloved alma mater, whose banner she'd taken with her into space. Let's be clear. Sally adored Stanford, adored every single minute she was there. Uh, She talked about it all the time. She was thrilled when um, Sid Drell offered her the spot on the think tank that let her come there after the Challenger Commission. Uh, She wanted to spend the rest of her life there. And yes, it was turned down. Sally was the world's best pivoter. Never dwelled on yesterday, never dwelled on shoulda, woulda, coulda. Mm -hmm. Sally got an even better offer from University of California, San Diego, pivoted, went down south and never looked back and spent the rest of her teaching career at the University of California, San Diego. What sort of a teacher was she? Well, uh, from by all accounts, from all of her students, she was a fabulous teacher. She taught not only advanced uh, astrophysics and physics and space physics courses, but she taught a, a course which was nicknamed um, Physics for Poets. And this was sort of introductory physics for people that can't figure out anything about physics. I threatened for years to come out and audit, and I, I could shoot myself every day when I realized I didn't do it. But the students in that class I spoke to all loved her, said she was just a great teacher. And she she loved doing it. She loved teaching. She liked molding minds. And she liked sharing the wisdom that she had gotten because the world wanted her to come and be a politician. The world wanted her to do everything from run for president to be the administrator of NASA. Sally would have none of it. She was happy in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Well, that chimes with what she did in 2001, which was set up Sally Ride Science, an organisation that still runs to this day, infusing upper elementary and middle school pupils about science. She did. And one of the most generous things about Sally is, yeah, she really, in the end, and probably in the beginning, loved the title, loved being the first American woman in space. But she also loved her ability to make sure that she wasn't the only American woman in space. Mm. And she opened doors every single place she could. She particularly liked opening them for little kids, especially little girls. She wanted little girls and little boys to understand that they too could do exactly what she did. She wanted them to understand that the world would be greater if they would do that. And she wanted them to have no obstacles in their way, whether it was financial because they couldn't study it in school, whether it was gender-based because people thought little girls shouldn't do that. Whatever it was, she wanted them to have an open door to study what they wanted, and she wanted to get the best and the brightest minds into space exploration. Hmm. And her expertise was still being sought after by NASA. In 2003, she was part of the examination of the Columbia disaster. And Sally, we should add, was the only person to sit on the board for both the Challenger and the Columbia investigation. So she was not only a trailblazing astronaut and academic, but also a leading science communicator at the same time. It's, it's quite a combination. Well, it's true. And 
She also pulled off another thing on the uh, investigation board of the Columbia disintegration. She was a key player in getting the real story about NASA's behavior out to the public, um, a story I tell in the book, that she managed to get a story out without any fingerprints on it, which is quite extraordinary. She, she really had a knack. But keep in mind, her goal in these things was she, was she had an engineer's mind and a poet's mind at the same time. She wanted to understand actions and consequences, mistakes and remedies. But she also wanted to open kids' minds up. Mm. She convinced NASA to put a camera in space that could be controlled remotely by students, allowing them to snap images of the home planet so they could study its environment up close. She understood that the primary goal of space ought to be studying Earth. This is our home planet. We've got to understand this. And everything she did was to make people understand, to expand our minds, to expand the possibilities, to go beyond ourselves. This is what she was interested in doing. Well, we're coming towards the end of our time now, Lynn, and we haven't spoken much about Sally's personal life. She married a fellow astronaut, as you mentioned, Steve Hawley. That was in 1982, but they divorced after five years. And for the second half of her life, she was in a relationship with Tam O'Shaughnessy, her childhood friend who she knew from tennis. Their relationship remained a secret and was only revealed after Sally's death, wasn't it? Yes, it was only revealed in the obituaries about her death because Tam O'Shaughnessy had written an obit to be posted the minute Sally died. Sally was suffering from pancreatic cancer. It was very clear at the end that she was about to die. And with Sally's permission, Tam had put in the obit at the very end that they had been living together in a loving relationship for 27 years. And the world didn't know this. Some people knew. I did not know. I knew Tam. I knew Sally awfully well. She would come and stay with me in New York when she came to visit and never told me. Sally was very good at keeping secrets. I believe an enormous amount of it had to do simply with the time she was living in. I believe an enormous amount of it had to do with her love for, her respect for, and our wish to protect NASA. I think she didn't want to worry about a country that still didn't know how to grapple with same-sex relationships, suddenly saying, oh, first American woman in space, so first American, first lesbian in space. And she didn't want to have to deal with that, I think. I say I think because Sally never talked about any of this with anyone. As I say, she was very good at keeping secrets, even with those very, very close to her. But I think it's all part of her story. This was a particular time and a particular place a woman who had the brains and the agility to seize the moment of what there was and not threaten what there could not be. Don't forget, when she was born in 1951, outer space was science fiction, uh, women's rights. Women's rights were marginal at best. And the social advances and lucky timing that let her go where she wanted to go and let all this intersect with her life as a brilliant young scientist makes her so inspiring. She took advantage of it. And the fact that she could not or would not openly identify herself as a gay woman, I think reflects not only her own intense need for privacy, but the shame and the fear that our then very intolerant society could inflict on even its heroes. She was a victim in a way of her time. I think she dealt with it the best she could. She was never unhappy from what I can tell. She was to 
eternal optimist. Uh, according to Tam, who certainly knew her best, Sally didn't waste time saying, I wish we could be out. She just lived her life the way she lived it. Sally Ride died in 2012, aged just 61. A chief engineer at NASA called her a scientist who took a detour through space. But Lynn, she was so much more than that, wasn't she? Oh, she was, you know. She was an icon to kids and to grown-ups alike. Uh, one year she was talking to a bunch of kids in an auditorium and maybe a thousand youngsters in the room. And she said, imagine this room in space. You could do 35 somersaults in a row. My favorite thing about space, she said, was being weightless. There's not even a close second. Well, every eye in the room was huge and wide and half of them would sign up to be astronauts. She knew how to have fun. She knew how to be bigger than she was. Somebody once said that it was only after you left her presence that you realized she was really short. <laughs> but it was that ability to be bigger than you actually are. You know, Sally was about 5'5". Five five. She wasn't tiny. But she was really a big person. She was lucky in her parents. She never let women or other scientists down. When the opportunity knocked, she was ready to open the door and sail through it. She knew how to seize the moment and be ready for it. She was of this world and leading us to another world. I, I've often kidded around and said, you know, Sally proved that you didn't need the right plumbing to have the right stuff. And I think that she brought back the ultimate flying lesson. She was asked over and over, what did you see out there? What did you see? And she somehow translated this dazzling reality that she saw from space into kind of a beam of uh, encouragement for the rest of us on Earth. What did she see out there? She always said, the stars don't look bigger, but they look brighter. What a lesson for all of us. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful lesson that you've given us, Lynn. Thank you for a wonderful portrait of Sally Ride. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stanford and the 20th Century. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. Join me next time when I'll be learning about the career of the woman who has more Oscars than any other, the costume designer, Edith Head. Thanks for listening. <laughs>